there seems to be somewhat of a somber spirit here today. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, it may be that you're tired. Uh, it may be that you are just uh, uh, maybe more reflective today. Uh, I don't know. It's not a bad thing. Uh, it just uh, seems to be. Um, but uh, I bless the Lord for you. It's good to be here today. Uh, we want to take the time to uh, intercede on behalf of some people today who serve us and serve us well. Uh, for those who uh, are not familiar with our time of intercession, we normally, through the course of each week, we will intercede on behalf of missions partners. Today we have the opportunity to intercede on behalf of some public servants, uh, some of whom we know and have relationships with. Uh, we want to pray for them. I'm going to mention them. We were able to reach out to some of them during the course of the week uh, to find out how we could pray for them. And they were all appreciative of us reaching out to them. And I want to mention some of them. Uh, we want to pray for Ed McMahon. He's the sheriff of New Hanover County. Um, Ed asked if we would to pray for him as he navigates through this season of life. Uh, his dad, uh, Bill, uh, is struggling with cancer. And uh, he said, just pray for him. But he said, pray for me as I uh, walk through this time. He said, pray for the protection of our officers here in New Hanover County. And he said, please pray for, he said, Jimmy, pray for me. And that the Lord would give me wisdom and guidance as I make decisions uh, regarding uh, our department and all that goes on with that. So we want to pray for Ed today. Uh, reached out to uh, David Rouser, our representative um, U.S. Congressman uh, David was again was appreciative of us reaching out to him. He asked if we would to please pray uh, for his clarity and knowing the will of God as he navigates through uh, his responsibilities uh, in the legislature. Uh, he said pray that he would have patience as he uh, works with those who are with him and around him. And he also asked if we would also pray that he would God would grant him wisdom. So we want to pray for uh, uh, David Rouser. Uh, reached out to Senator Burr's office this week, and uh, they uh, said, please pray that God would grant him wisdom uh, as he is working through the current legislation and upcoming legislation. And he said he really did need, he needed direction from God and how to navigate through these things. Um, also had an opportunity to reach out to Carson Smith. Uh, we, many of us know Carson. Uh, Carson wasn't able to get back in touch with me, but we want to pray for him today. We want to pray for Mayor Sappho. And uh, also, uh, we want to pray for uh, Alan Cutler, uh, our sheriff in uh, Pender County. So if you will today, and others that you may know or be aware of, if you will, let's pray for them uh, as we join together now. Father, thank you uh, for your grace toward us in our government and uh, our nation, uh, our local government, and our community, and our state. Uh, we are grateful, Father, for the men and women that you have granted to serve. We know, God, that they serve uh, at your will. Uh, help us uh, as we give consideration to them and the leadership they provide. Uh, Father, calls us to be appreciative of them even when we may not agree with the things that they do and the decisions that they make. Uh, help us, Father, to be reminded uh, that you are in control of all things. Father, we lift uh, Sheriff McMahon before you. We thank you for him and his witness and testimony. 
Uh, Father, would you comfort him and give him grace and mercy as he ministers to his dad? And would you comfort him as he gives consideration to his love for his dad? Uh, we do ask, Father, that you would grant him wisdom and guidance as he makes the decisions for his department and as he leads his officers. And Father, we do ask that you would give uh, and watch over uh, our officers here and protect them. Uh, Father, for David Rouser, we thank you for him, uh, for uh, his uh, profession of faith and belief in you. We ask, Father, that you would grant him wisdom, uh, clarity in knowing your will. And Father, would you help him as he uh, seeks to lead well. Father, for Senator Burr, we're grateful for him. Uh, God, grant him wisdom as he works uh, with those around him. Uh, and Father, would you give him particular insight as he works on the upcoming legislation. We're grateful today for Carson Smith and our relationship with him and for Alan Cutler. We lift them before you, Father, and ask God that you would grant them grace and mercy as they serve. Uh, and Father, would you help them as they lead their families. And Father, we're grateful for Mayor Sappho and ask, Father, that you would work in his life uh, and that would, you would use him in a way that would benefit our community. Uh, Father, for other leaders today, um, we ask, God, that as you work on behalf of the people here, uh, that you would be merciful and gracious toward them and help us, Father, as we seek to hold them up uh, and to follow their leadership uh, would you give us a particular sensitivity toward them and their service under your leadership in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with us to our text for today, Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, we are going to pick up uh, at verse 4, uh, grateful for Adam and uh, for him being faithful in teaching us last week. I was particularly blessed. Thank you, Adam. Uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 12 today. Um, cleared this with Brian. Brian, I hope I quote you or get reference to what you had to say. But uh, last week, uh, upon leaving, uh, Brian spoke to me regarding uh, this culture's impact on the church, and he was speaking specific to COVID, uh, I think, but I suppose that uh, he would not limit it to COVID. But his comment was to the effect that the pandemic has, in fact, had a purifying effect on the church in the same way that persecution had a purifying effect on the church uh, when we're reading about her here in Hebrews. Uh, we may have in some cases felt maybe that the church has been hurt or damaged uh, over the course of this past year's events. Yet it's actually had the opposite effect. And for those of us who have a lingering sympathy for all of our professing brothers and sisters who distance themselves from the body of Christ and the assembling together for the work and the interest of the church. We may be doing so because of our own lack of understanding of the significance of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, no doubt, we have those who, for genuine health concerns, uh, have found it necessary to be particularly careful during these times, and we're not insensitive uh, to that. 
But the larger group that has left the church, and I'm not talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church at large. But the larger group that's left the church has not re- and has not returned may in fact not be who they said they were. And for churches today who still don't find it necessary to meet, they may not be the church at all. Of course, we can't speak of every situation with absolute certainty. But acknowledging these facts does cause us to seriously consider the challenges of the times and our culture. As you recall, one of the pressing issues before the original audience of this letter that we know of as the Hebrews was the persecution of the church. We have repeatedly mentioned that. Now there were other things happening for sure, and we have talked about some of those, but it's clear that their present persecution and the anticipated persecution that was being spoken of was a major concern. I want to say that I believe our current circumstances present some of the same challenges. And let me also state that we should not be surprised to see increasingly more marginalization and acts of hostility toward the church. Uh, If the church heightens its efforts to speak against a corrupt culture, then we should expect that there will remain a growing intolerance of its message and its people. I was thinking about this in relation to John the Baptist. He wasn't in prison because he seemed a little odd or strange, though he was. He was in prison because he preached the necessity of repentance. And that message was not limited to the farmer out on the hillside somewhere. No, it reached into the assembly halls of the politicians. Even the wives of the political leaders felt threatened. We read that in Scripture. As the ever-moving lines of our culture's social and moral values are called into question by the church, as we preach the truth of Scripture... And when I'm saying that, I'm not talking about just preachers. I'm talking about all of us as we proclaim the truth of Scripture. We're not going to be liked. And we're not going to be appreciated. And we won't be tolerated. We'll be hated. And we'll be despised. And there will be efforts made to silence the church. You say, that sounds pretty Pretty drastic, pretty raw. It's the truth. It's the truth. And we need to be aware of that. And I'm looking at folks that in all likelihood are going to outlive me. I believe, uh, young men and women, I believe that you are going to see persecution, serious persecution, that might even be equal to the persecution that the church Uh, that the author of Hebrews was writing to experienced. Because we can't continue to move along like we are as a culture and be liked by the culture. Not if the church is to stand on the truth of God's Word. Because we don't even like to be told that we're wrong. You know how I know that? We get tensed up when we confess sin here. 
Even in our own spirit, we get stirred up. Can you imagine what it is like for the lost to hear that they are sinning? And as we define sin and clearly talk about the principles of God's Word, they're not going to like it. They're not. We will be hated and despised. And we will be silenced, or at least the attempts will be made to silence us. But I want to say, in the end of the day, they'll fail. Because Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What he did not say, nor does Scripture say, is that somehow the church will not be persecuted. It has been persecuted. And it will continue to be persecuted. Jesus said so. Luke chapter 21. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I want you to hear that. This will be our opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. And with none of, your advers- none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And it's with this in mind that we approach our text today. Certainly the context for the letter of the Hebrews is much broader than just persecution. But persecution is of primary interest, and here's why. We've stated it before, but let's be reminded of it. What we really believe, and what we are really committed to, in that belief is worked out in the furnace of hardship and persecution. Our strength is determined when we face resistance. So, before we read the text, I want to give you the point that we'll be looking at today. There is a very real sense in the Christian, that life is to be lived toward and in for something and someone supremely significant. That someone is the Lord Jesus Christ and that something is the glory of God. And most everything that a Christian encounters in this life, in this world, including his or her own thoughts, feelings and desires stands opposed to Christ and the glory of God. That's the reason every week we deal with confessing sin here. You know why? Because our thoughts are inconsistent with the glory of God apart from the work of God in us. But here's the thing. 
pay close attention to our aim, it is that there is a very real sense in a Christian that it shouldn't be that way. That our heart should be toward the glory of God. And that our life should be lived for Jesus. It's a reason this morning when we read, read the 119th Psalm and Pastor Booney made mention of the fact that the psalmist was declaring his love for God's Word. That's inconsistent with the heart of an unbeliever. And I will say this, that for the man or woman or boy or girl who professes Christ and who does not love God and His Word, there is a direct inconsistency with what is being professed and the reality, the reality of the heart of a believer. Part of what Adam was pointing to last week when we gave consideration to the direction of a believer toward maturity. And let's pick up in verse 4 of chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I don't know about you, uh, but I have read this passage over and over and over and over again many times. And you know what I found? It's a difficult passage. In fact, it may even be one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. For these verses, the first verses that we read, it's clear that the text stands to create some difficulties when we begin to read it and try to understand what it says. Now, the most common question that comes from this text is, can a person lose his or her salvation? We read that text, and that is the question that comes. And I'm not saying that that is not a worthwhile question. It's certainly an important question. There is the larger context here 
And we will look at this again, the bookend of this, in just a couple of weeks. But it's interesting, as Adam brought to our attention last week, uh, we have this teaching along about the priesthood of Christ. He is our high priest. And it's like in the middle of this, there is this pause and these warnings that come out about maturity and about the text that we're reading today. And then when we get to chapter 7, the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, we pick back up on the priesthood of Christ. Why the pause? Well, there is something to do here with the overall work of Christ as our high priest that serves to help us to understand this context. So what I'm saying is, is that I do believe it's a worthwhile question to ask, can someone lose his or her salvation? But in the bigger piece of things, there is this warning in the middle of this as it connects with who we are as believers and how we profess Christ and what that means in light of the fact that Jesus is the high priest. In light of the fact what he has done as our high priest to secure salvation for those who believe. This is a text that I believe that is often referred to by theological, various theological camps, but one in particular that holds that salvation can be lost. Now, I don't know where you are in all of that today. Um, hopefully you will see different, but the, the point is that each of the statements mentioned in this, and when I say each of these statements, if you will look, if those who, it says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. All of those are pointed back to the camp that believes that salvation can be lost as proof that it can be lost. Why so? Well, it sounds as though everything that has happened to this person points to the fact that this person is, in fact, a genuine believer and that along the way this person has turned away from Christ and has denounced his or her faith and by virtue of that has lost his or her salvation what's more if the text is taken in this vein you would necessarily have to conclude that if that occurs that the salvation that they lost can never be recovered why because we began in that verse saying that it is impossible for repentance to come back to that person or for that person to be renewed in repentance. Again, this is no slight against those who would believe that salvation can be lost, but most of those who believe that salvation can be lost don't see that as a possibility. They see Salvation is something that can be had and lost and can be had and lost and can be regained uh, as often as they come back to say that they believe or as often as they would profess. Of course, I would argue, at least for just a moment, that there is ample evidence found in Scripture 
that would speak to the contrary. That salvation isn't lost. That genuine salvation, in fact, cannot be lost. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God keeps those he saves. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Paul, in writing to the Romans in chapter 8, in verses 38 and 39, says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 6-8, says, Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, in John 10, 28 through 29, it's recorded, it says, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And these are just a few. But they reflect the larger teaching of Scripture. So when we come to this text, we have to do what we have to do when we study any passage of Scripture, and that is to look at the larger teaching and then take what seems to be, in our minds, something that is being said that is different, and filter that back into the larger and more extensive teaching. And we do that here today, and hopefully you will follow those passages of Scripture, and there are many, many more. But that's not the point here today. We can conclude that this text isn't talking about men and women leaving the church who are believers, and now by their leaving the church and denouncing Christ, have lost their salvation. We are, however, being told that those who seem to be believers and who professed such, but who clearly left and denounced what they once professed, they were unbelievers. And our question may be, is that possible? Is that possible? Can someone be that close and now profess Christ and somehow or another believe that he or she is a believer and then in fact leave and denounce Christ? Well, it seems to be clear in the text that it is because if you look, notice what it says, and then have fallen away. So the author of Hebrews are pointing back to those who had all of these really rich experiences, and yet they have fallen away. It seemed to have occurred there. And it seems that there have been those who had clearly fallen away. And John mentioned a, simpler, sim, a similar group of people in his first epistle. He said, and they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain, in other words, crystal clear, that they are not 
of us. You may wonder, why did I start with talking about what Brian was talking about? Brian was saying that COVID has been good for the church. And it has been good for the church because the church can now be better clearly defined. Now, it doesn't mean that there's still not unbelievers who are professing Christ that are connected with and in the church. It does mean that this past year has been an opportunity by the providence of God for the church to be more clearly defined and for the churches to be more clearly defined. This doesn't be negative, but when we have churches who are not meeting for various fears, we would have to say, where is their sense of understanding what the church is and who the church is and what the church is to do? Not meant to be critical. It's just making a clear observation. Making a clear observation. Well, the church is to meet. So what does the church do? The church meets. The church is to preach the gospel. So what does the church do? The church meets and preaches the gospel. What is the church to do? The church is to meet and preach the gospel and the church is to gather and assemble to encourage and hold one another up during what kind of days? During all days, but most especially during days of hardship and persecution. Why? Because that's when faith is being tested. That's when faith is being clearly defined in our lives. That's when we who are professing Christ are finding out, do we really believe what we say we believe and are we really committed to the things that we say that we are committed to? Or are we fair-weather Christians? Maybe one of the clearest examples in scriptures of a person who seemed to be a believer and fell away is Judas Iscariot. You know, not even his closest friends knew that he wasn't a believer. Jesus knew that he wasn't. But his other 11 friends that he walked with and served with for three years, they didn't have a clue. Or if they did, nothing is mentioned about it in the Gospels. In fact, if they had figured it was him... I don't believe that they would have been sitting around the table on that last evening wondering, is he talking about me when Jesus was saying that there was one who was going to betray him? If they had known that he was a spy, if they had known that he wasn't right, they would have immediately looked at him and thought it was him. We get a sense from the text when we look at it in John's Gospel and other Gospels that even when he got up and left, they had no clue. They had no understanding of the fact that he wasn't a believer. Jesus' own disciples, they were not aware of it. And the point isn't that he was a, some kind of a double agent or playing the spy game. That's not the point of the text. He heard and saw everything that the other 11 disciples heard and saw. He had been cared for and loved by Christ. He had been saved from the raging sea, just like the other disciples. And as far as we can tell, when we read the Scriptures, because we don't have an ex a, a statement of exclusion, when Jesus sends the twelve out, 
He preaches the gospel. Probably even performed miracles. You see, he looked the part. He talked the part. And for a season, his actual condition wasn't discernible by those around him. But finally, when under pressure, the reality of his true profession came to light. Now we may say, yes, but that was Judas. We need to be careful. We need to remember that God is providential in all of our lives. Not just Judas. Just because there may not have been, there, there may not be a statement in Scripture that was prophetic toward you does not mean that you are not created and known by God and that God is providential in your life. What is clear is that while those who fell away were not genuine believers, they were given a great and clear revelation of the glory of God. Now I want you to know I've struggled with this text. And I won't go into all the details. But I will tell you this, and I confess this. I try, I have tried to take and impose my neatly ordered, well-stated theological position upon this text. And what happens when I do that is, is that it seems to lessen the impact of the text. And then I'm reminded, Jimmy, you can't suppose that you know as much as God. You can't suppose that you know more than God. This is what I know about this text is that this was a serious matter and it was being brought to the forefront of the mind of the church. So we have to suppose that the Holy Spirit knows something about this church that caused him to graciously and directly approach this issue. And if I believe that about them, I've got to also believe that about me. I have to believe it about us in some way. That this text is for us too. So what about the church today? Well, the reason that we started the way that we did this morning was to help us to understand how serious it is for those who walk away from the church because when Brian was speaking to me last week, and I know it was on his heart, I'm thinking, here are men and women that are parts of local bodies that I know of. People that I actually know that are no longer assembling with the church. And while they may not be openly denouncing the gospel, their separation from the church says a lot about what they really believe. And here's the warning. How do we know that in due time they will not denounce the gospel? If in fact their lives, as is rightly ordered and intentionally so by God, 
where they're supposed to be connected with the body of Christ. May they not also denounce Him in due time. When the fire that once burned in them no longer burns. When their interests are no longer the same. And granted, we've already stated that not every situation is the same. And we're not insensitive to everyone. But we do need to realize the seriousness of the times that we live in. No, not everyone openly denounces his or her faith. But some quietly denounce. And here's the warning. This is the part of the text. Look at the very first words in verse 4. For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. You see how serious that is? What hope do they have if they cannot repent? What hope do they have if they don't repent? Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what are we hearing? Well, I'm hearing again, and we have talked about it before, but hear this again. I am hearing again that most of the evangelistic methods that I have been taught have been taught to tell people to believe and to pray and ask Jesus into your heart and everything is okay. And yet everything that Adam taught last week and the things that we're going to look at in the rest of our time together today point to the fact that ain't so. That is not so. There is an absolute separation there. There is no truth that rests there. Well, let's look at this text a minute. What does it mean? Does it mean that God turns His back on them and now even if they would want to repent, they cannot? Well, true repentance will always be embraced by God. What seems to occur is that once a person has been that close, there is great danger that a turning away is a statement that they'll never have any confidence in Christ. We sang Jesus paid it all this morning. We sang that song today because He paid it all and he is the only way to salvation you remove that you have no confidence at all that there will ever be eternal life which makes this statement here this next statement so particularly important because it says and to restore them again to repentance can't it's impossible since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. In other words, they are saying that that which I once believed, I no longer believe. I denounce Christ. Some openly, some verbally, some quietly, 
I denounce Christ. Crucifying Him again, in other words, saying He deserves to die. And His death does not and cannot pay for my salvation. Isn't that what the people were clamoring that day when they said crucify Him? They weren't hollering for Him to be crucified so that they could be saved. They were calling out that there is nothing to this man. Just kill him. Get him out of the way. Isn't that ultimately what we say when we reject Christ? When someone rejects Christ and denounces Him, aren't they saying He is nothing? Get Him out of the way. The only other option is to do what? It's to exalt Him. To cry out as we did this morning as we sang, Jesus, only Jesus, I trust You. Help me trust You more with the understanding that apart from trusting in this One, there is no hope. That's what we profess When we say we believe in Jesus for our salvation. And that is no light matter. That is not pray a prayer because I want to go to heaven. Christ's life is worth something. His life bought salvation for those who would believe. He didn't deserve to die. And if there's any confusion here about what the outcome is, the author of Hebrews clearly tells us in the illustration that he uses, which is a clear illustration. Verse 7. In case we misunderstood what was being said, he says, For land that has drunk the rain. Okay? For land that has drunk the rain. That often falls on it. And produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated. Receives a blessing from God. That same land. Broad landscape here. That same land that receives this same rain. The revelation of the glory of God in Christ. The preaching of the gospel. If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Brian knew this. I know it. I hope you know it. That to think of those who have professed Christ to leave the church under any set of circumstances. To separate themselves from the church and to begin the path of denouncing Christ. That is no light matter. That is the warning. That is the heart of this text. That is what is being said. This is no light matter. 
Why? Because their end is to be cursed. I think today we need to heed the warning. And as heavy as this warning is, there's just this great encouragement in this text. Look at verse 9. The author turns and says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. The thing that I've been grappling with for the last weeks is why is this warning given to a group of people and now in turn the author comes back to encourage them. He is not minimizing the warning. He's not minimizing that warning. He's not saying, oh, but by the way, this doesn't apply to you. Well, he's saying we have hopes of better things for you. Why? Because today, he says, we see evidence of things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What have we heard over and over again from the author of Hebrews? Persevere, continue, you're still doing it, continue to do it. To do what? To love God. To love His people. To love His Word. We particularly chose the 119th Psalm today to remind us that the heart of one who has a heart for God, who professes faith and it is lived out, it necessarily is tied to a love for God and a love for His Word and a love for His people. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The fruit of salvation will be seen in the life of a true believer. Last week we heard that a moving toward maturity will be seen in the life of a true believer. And that maturity is seen in the life, that maturity is seen in the life in, in a tangible way. It's not just to say that we are maturing. It means nothing if we don't see evidence of those things in the life of a believer. And that is a love for God, and a love for His Word, a love for His people, and a love for His work. How will it be seen? Well, notice what he says in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. We heard that word last week. Sluggish. Lazy. In other words. What's the opposite of that? It's diligence. In other words, there is a diligence toward loving God. In other words, there is a there is a real zeal that is being developed in the life of a believer. It's not this lackadaisical, lazy way we have of doing whatever it is that we often do in church and in life without consideration for a deliberate zeal, a deliberate passion for God. 
A passion for His Word. A passion for His people. I love you. I hope you know that. But I want you to know that by what I do with and for you. I care about you. Not just because I'm your pastor, but because you are my brothers and sisters. You are my family. That is the way that we are to live together in the context of the body of Christ with a deep affection for each other to the point that we give of ourselves for each other's care and well-being. That's why here at Oak Valley you hear us talk about our covenant relationship with one another. Those aren't just words. Those aren't just words. I don't love any body more than I love you. I don't. I don't love anyone more than I love you. I don't care about anyone more than I care about you. Why? Because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are a part of this church family. And it's not just because we've singled ourselves off. It is because I hope that you sense and understand that and it's something that is developed with us that we understand that because of who God has called us to be and how He works in us. I don't want to spend time with anybody more than I want to spend time with you because of our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ together and the love that He has shown us a diligence toward maturity that is reflected and seen in the way that we love each other, the way that we love the brethren. And then notice what else? And being imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We'll talk more about this next week, but the point is, that there is a maturity that is reflected in the fact that we continue in faith and continue to believe. And that's not just a statement that is made. It is reflected in our lives in the way that we live before each other. That's the life of the believer. And here's what is so promising and hopeful here. Is that in the midst of this warning, the author says, and I see these things in your life. And I see these things in ours. Is that enough? Only as we continue. Am I fearful of us falling away? Only if we don't. That's the point. Only if we don't. Well, how do we have confidence and assurance then of our salvation in that? And the author helps them with that as well. Two reasons. Adam ended last week on verse 3 as God permits. Understand that God's work does not stop there. Notice in verse 10. We have confidence in it because God is not unjust so as to overlook our work. 
Now don't think that somehow or another that we are backhanding in here that God saves us and if some way we're coming into the back door but we stay saved by our works. That's not the point. What is being said here, Booney had already quoted it earlier coming from Philippians that we will do what? That Paul wrote, he said, I'm confident that God is going to complete His work in us. That He is going to complete His work in us. That is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. That God is not, so, not unjust so as to overlook your work. Why? Because your work in these things, if this is where you are as a believer, is the work that God is bringing about in your life. And He's not going to overlook that. He's not going to overlook His work. When I was working through this text, I wrote in the margin, God will not disregard His work in a believer. He just won't do it. Why? Because it's His work. He's not going to disregard that. And He's not going to disregard it all the way to the point of doing what? To fulfill His promises. Notice that they continued in faith and patience to inherit Look at the last part of verse 12. To inherit what? The promises. What promises? The promises of eternal life. What are some things that we can conclude? Well, one, that these verses should not push us to fear. But let me say this, we shouldn't pass over them either as if they are not pertinent to us. We shouldn't be fearful. But please don't be foolish. They mean something. Two, sitting under the teaching of God's Word is a serious matter. When we sit under the teaching of God's Word, our ears should be perked up. Because God is gracious to us in teaching us and directing us. And it's a serious matter. And for those who are exposed to the Gospel, there's a great responsibility for having been given such a privilege. And for those who have been moved by it, Convinced intellectually in some way? Drawn to it? Warmed by it? What should we say? I'm going to tell you what we should say today. Please believe and trust in Christ today. If you're here and you have never professed Christ, but you have heard the gospel and its truth, I encourage you, believe. Please believe. It's a serious matter for you not to believe. For those who turn away and denounce Christ and disregard His salvation, Scripture is clear, it is impossible for them to return. That's hard. That's incredibly hard to think about. There are consequences for rejecting Christ. Do we get it? There are real consequences for rejecting Christ. 
There's no other means by which we can be saved. None. None. I know we often quote that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. We say it just that way, and I believe that we engage it just that way. La da 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 da. Oh no. There's no other means by which we can be saved. The fourth thing is that the ongoing and progressive work of maturing will be evident in the lives of those who are genuine believers. If you want to know if someone's faith is genuine faith, not because they're perfect, no. But there will be an increasing desire on their part is I want to know God. I want to love God. I love His work. I love His people. And those desires won't be just stated desires but there will be evidence in their life that it is producing fruit. I came, come out of, came off of a farm. I, I get this. Land, been rained upon, there's an expectation of what? That it produce the crop that is good and what it was intended to do. And when it doesn't, and when it gets that rain, and you've done everything you can do, and it just won't produce, that land's no good. It's done. I get it. When the gospel is rained down upon us, it should produce fruit. And it will, if it's real, if that faith is real. Fifth, we can be confident that God will keep His promises and honor His work. And I want to conclude here. All of these are important to the witness of the church and the church's gospel work in the world and in the community. Those are not light words. They're not light words. Our Ability as believers, as a church, as Oak Valley Church, rest in our genuine belief and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, a belief that brings about fruit in our lives. You say, well, that fruit's here. Everybody's going to love us. No, that fruit here, the world is going to hate us. But it will not lessen the witness and the impact and the testimony that God intends for His people and His church in this world. It is exactly what the church needs to do because it is exactly what the world needs. Whether they want it or not, they need Jesus. And they need to know that they need Jesus, but they need to know what Jesus looks like. I'm going to put in a little jab here. So when I'm hearing about churches that are wanting to shape themselves in a way that the world will love them and embrace them and accept them, thinking that that is the way the world will be run, 
will be one, I can tell you then that the church has already ceased to be the church. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how nice seeming and loving that that sounds, it's not. But I am confident that God will and can work in and through His people and His Word to bring about His good work. What does that mean for you today? Well, if you're a member of Oak Valley, just know that our ongoing commitment to the work of the gospel is grounded in what we do here in regards to preaching and teaching the gospel and seeking to live it out with each other, loving each other, caring for each other, and caring for others in that way. And I just ask, is, do, do, you, do, do you get that? Is that... Is that what you are about? If it's not what you are about, please evaluate and look and give consideration to whether your faith is in fact genuine. I believe that's what the author of Hebrews was seeking to do. If you're a member of another church, I would encourage you to do that very thing. Do you have that level of love and commitment to your local body? And if you are a believer and you are not connected to a local body, then I would encourage you, please find the local body soon so that you can give of yourself in that context for that purpose. If you're here and you've not yet professed Christ, I want to please call on you. Trust Him. There's no one else to trust in. No one. You can stop your search. It can end here today. It should end here today. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. And then, help me as I seek to help you live to the end Every day for the something and the someone who is supreme above all other things and persons.